Hi, I'm Debbie George Addis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today we're going to talk about Dennis Prager testifying in the Senate yesterday. And then is the Supreme Court really supposed to be supreme? We have IPI's Tom Giovanetti joining me in studio. The tweet storm, storm blowback, a little tongue twister there, tweet storm blowback, and finally the feminine exit, women supporting Trump. And last, of course, I'm going to tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome again to America Can We Talk and also to today's First Five. Yesterday, Dennis Prager, the fabulous host who's been on air on radio and television for years and also the founder of PragerU, Prager University, testified in the United States Senate before the Subcommittee on the Constitution. He basically was talking about the assault on free speech being conducted by the social media companies that we hear about all the time. In particular, he was focusing on the PragerU YouTubes that have been either blocked or subject to a, um, a screening by YouTube that limits the number of people who can see what that PragerU is all about. I'll tell you a bit more about PragerU in a moment, but first I want to play just a brief clip of what Dennis Prager had to say yesterday in the Senate. YouTube has restricted access to 56 of our 325-minute videos and to other videos we produce. Restricted means families that have a filter to avoid pornography and violence cannot see that video. It also means that no school or library can show that video. Google has even restricted access to a video on the Ten Commandments, as we have seen. Yes, the Ten Commandments. We have repeatedly asked Google why our videos are restricted. No explanation is ever given. In fact, never in American history has there been as strong a threat to freedom of speech as there is today. Before addressing this, however, I think it important that you know a bit about me and the organization I co-founded, Prager University, PragerU, as it is often referred to. Having taught Jewish history at Brooklyn College, written a book on anti-Semitism, and fought Jew hatred my whole life, I thank God for living in America. It breaks my heart that a vast number of young Americans have not only not been taught how lucky they are to be Americans, but have been taught either how unlucky they are or how ashamed they should be. It breaks my heart for them because contempt for one's country leaves a terrible hole in one's soul and because ungrateful people always become unhappy and angry people. And it breaks my heart for America because no good country can survive when its people have contempt for it. Folks, that was a stellar clip from Dennis Prager. And if you go to our website, americachemitalk.org, there's a link to the full portion, the, all the remarks that he submitted. You know, Dennis Prager gave the written remarks to the Senate ahead of time and the full link to what he had to, link to, what he had to say. I just want to, in today's first five, talk about how important this is that Dennis Prager is fighting. Well, his remarks before the United States Senate were really profound, as you heard, and he talked about, in particular, what the uh, YouTube issue was that he was particularly focusing on that day, and that was there was a PragerU video about the Ten Commandments, which 
Prager, which uh, YouTube designated as one of the uh, videos that they had to limit access to. So something, a, a tiny portion um, of the listeners to uh, PragerU's YouTubes will not be able to hear the, the video on the Ten Commandments. And they had in this hearing expressed, well, what is it? What could be possibly have hit the pornography you know, uh, flagging on the part of YouTube that you would block out the Ten Commandments. And he made reference to, well, I mean, we do have in there you shall not kill, but we're actually, we're, in, we're not in favor of killing. We're talking about not killing. He was really eloquent describing how absurd it was. And among the many other eloquent remarks he made, he ran through a list of people who have done PragerU videos. If you've never watched them, I urge you to watch all of them. They're usually five minutes or less focus on one particular topic, and they really are well-informed, insightful, often people you've heard of, famous people. Um, he's had a Secretary General of NATO, a former Prime Minister of Norway, of Canada, Spain. He's had Charles Krauthammer, all sorts of people. But his most eloquent remarks were saved, as you heard toward the end, making the point that there is just profound hatred for America and for the ideals of America that seem to be expressed by the willingness of YouTube to limit free speech. And he did say, and I'll close my first five by saying this, he couldn't be more right. The idea that these social media giants think that the answer to things that they don't want you focusing on, like the importance of religion as the founding of America, the focus of Judeo-Christian ideas in the founding of America, the meaning of the Ten Commandments. When you have social media giants deciding that America really shouldn't hear this and they should be screened out and not available to church groups and, and other kinds of groups that may have chosen this screening by YouTube, you really have people at YouTube screening out important ideas Americans should understand, and even at a more core level, you have those people thinking they are the deciders of what Americans can hear. It is a profound challenge to the, our commitment as Americans to freedom of speech. Great prayer testimony in uh, the United States Senate yesterday. Listen to all of it and encourage your senator to support at the very least, getting after these social media giants. Some people are advocating breaking up uh, these social media giants. I, I think it probably couldn't be a bad idea, but that's, that's a big and uh, down the road issue. The issue now is to recognize there is a genuine threat to free speech in America, and God bless Dennis Prager for speaking up about it. And that, my friends, is today's First Five. Well, as I mentioned before we started the show, we have a guest in studio today, Tom Giovanetti. Uh, he is the, I'm going to introduce him in just a moment here. He is the president of IPI, which is based here in Dallas, Institute of Policy Innovation, or for Policy Innovation. They're a public policy research organization. I want to urge you to go to their website, IPI.org. I do it almost every day because it's always filled with interesting position papers. They're not so lengthy that you won't read them. They're serious, focus on one subject, well-reasoned, just a great source of public policy thinking. Tom Giovanetti's background includes, uh, he has been part of joining IPI in 1992, a freelance policy writer. He worked for a small manufacturing company uh, where it ultimately led him, in, in addition to what his job was, to uh, gave him real-world ex world experience in how taxes and regulations affect small business. Tom Giovanetti is nationally uh, known. He's published in Wall Street Journal, Washington Times, Investors Business Daily. He uh, represents IPI to many national and even international organizations. And he's just a great guest to have on the show. So welcome, Tom. Thank you, Debbie. Thanks for having me. So glad you're here. Well, the reason I mentioned I wanted to have you come on, you gave a speech not too long ago in Texas to a Republican women's group. But the speech was focused on the idea about judicial supremacy. 
The basic concept being we have come to just accept in America that the final word on almost any issue, the final word is whatever the Supreme Court says that it is. And so we have, for example, Congress, the courts, the legislatures, everyone, the executive branch just surrenders once the Supreme Court has spoken and said, well, that's our system. The Supreme Court is the final arbiter. And you are challenging that idea. And many people are, but you wrote eloquently about it. I want to ask you about it. Why are you challenging this idea of the Supreme Court having ultimate judicial supremacy? Well, it's not just the Supreme Court. It's the whole judicial branch. I mean, think about what we have seen in recent months. We have literally seen mid-level judges in Washington state, in Hawaii, issue injunctions that tied the hand of the president of the United States. Yep. So it's not just the Supreme Court, it's the entire, it's the idea that the judicial branch and judges are supreme over states, over legislatures, and over Congress. This idea of judicial supremacy, if we were to poll your listeners on this, I think 99% of your viewers and listeners would say yes, the courts are supposed to be the ultimate arbiters of whether something is constitutional or not, or whether it's legal or not. The problem is if you actually study civics, and if you actually read the Federalist Papers, and if you read the Constitution, you find out that's not the case. Now, I think everybody more or less understands this idea that we have these three co-equal branches of government. I think everybody kind of understands the idea of checks and balances. But we need to, re we need to remember why we have those checks and balances, and that's because our founders, the, the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence, the people who wrote the Constitution, they, they were determined that the American people would not be ruled. There's a difference between being ruled by someone and self-government. And we were designed to be a system of self-government to where we would determine for ourselves the rules we operated under. We would, not be, we would not have rules imposed on us by someone else. And so that's why they took the federal government and they broke it up into three pieces. And in our system, there has to be consensus among the three branches in order for something to happen. That's why, for instance, Congress passes laws, but the president has to sign them or veto them. That's why Congress can impeach a president, but who presides over the impeachment trial? The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. You have all these different devices to where one branch cannot by itself do anything. In our original design, a branch of government cannot impose its will on the American people. You have to have consensus. And, but even before we get to the three co-equal branches of government, you have the states. Mm -hmm. And remember, the states created the federal government. The states are the first check on federal power. This has been the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. The states reserved all of this power to the states, right? So we don't just have the three co-equal branches of government that are checks on power. We also have a fourth player, which is the states themselves. Okay, And that's how our system is designed to work. And that is how our system basically worked until the 1950s, when you had the Warren Court, this very activist, liberal, progressive Supreme Court. And in a series of court decisions, the Warren Court proclaimed itself supreme over the other branches of government. You know, which, you know, isn't that convenient, you yes. know, that you just declare yourself to <laughs> yes. be supreme. Yeah. Up until that point, that is not how it worked. And so what we've been operating under since the 50s is this idea of judicial supremacy, that, you know, Congress can, can do things, the executive branch can do things, 
the state can do things, but really you're just play acting. Really you're just pretending because nothing you do actually matters unless the courts say it's okay or not. And that's how we operate. That's how everyone thinks the system is supposed to work, but that is a fundamental betrayal of our constitutional design. That was an extraordinary summary. I just loved it. I want to go right to your point about the uh, the states. To start with, the idea of the yeah. states. You wrote an art, and by the way, again, people should go to IPI.org. There's a summary here called "Notes from TFRW Talk Against Judicial Supremacy." A lot of the points we'll talk about today are summarized there. You should read them so you can repeat them to your friends. Tell your 25 best friends how how important these ideas are. But. You basically say our problem, we've got off track with checks and balances, is the states have abrogated their duty to the first and best check against the federal government, which Ninth and Tenth Amendment, and secondly, the courts have asserted a completely unconstitutional doctrine of judicial supremacy. So what is it? You, you talk about the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, and yep. basically I think everybody knows, but the Ninth Amendment has the, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people, so you still have the rights you are, you you have they've been set that set are yours, and then the Tenth Amendment, the powers not delegated to the U.S. government by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively. So, what does that mean that the states should be able to do? I mean, in what way could the states? assert this sure. a power again. Sure, absolutely. By the way, there's a really important distinction in what you just read that I, I think people miss all the time. We as conservatives, constitutionalists, free marketers, whatever you call yourself, we should never use the phrase states' rights. Yeah. Never. We should never use the phrase states' rights. In our Constitution, people have rights. Government doesn't have rights in our Constitution. People have rights. Government has powers. So the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, they talk about the rights of the people, but then they talk about the powers of government. And the idea is, remember, it was the states who wrote the Constitution, right? Because there was no country yet. Yeah. Right? Yep, yep. So you, you would think, I mean, whoever was writing the Constitution, they were going to reserve a lot of power for themselves, right? That just makes sense. So, so that's what the states did. So what the states said is, we are at the top of the power pyramid here, okay? Washington is not at the top. The states are at the top. And we create the federal government and we delegate certain powers to it. We also, by the way, create our own municipalities. We create counties and cities and we give them powers. But any power we've not delegated to the federal government or to the cities, we retain at the state level. So in our constitutional design, the states are supposed to have really more power than any other level of government. So that's why I said earlier, the states are the first check to make sure that we're not being ruled from Washington, D.C. But then, of course, you have the three branches of government. And, and if you study political science, most political scientists will tell you, yes, they're more or less co-equal branches of government, but if you really look at the powers that are assigned, the Constitution intends the legislature to be slightly more powerful yes, than the yes. other two. I was going to make that right? point, yep. The most representative, most, most democratic body. Tied to the people. Right, the one that is closest to the people. Now, the founders were afraid of the people going crazy. That's part of why they did these checks and balances. The founders really didn't trust pure democracy. They didn't want us to be a pure democracy. Right. They wanted us to be a republic. But the, the branch of government that is supposed to have slightly more power than the other two is the legislature. But the founders were particularly concerned about one aspect of their design. They looked at their design and they said, you know, the thing that could really go wrong here is that the judicial branch could gain too much power. They, they knew yeah, that right. was the fatal problem. And so they, there was a debate in, in the Constitution about 
how much power do we give the judicial branch? And there was a specific decision made, we will not give the courts the power to enforce their own decisions. This is not an accidental omission. If you've ever had to sue anybody at small claims court, right, you find this out. It's easy to get a judgment, but it can be hard to collect because yep. the courts don't have the power to enforce. And I, I, one of my favorite quotes, if, you, if I can read it, Please this is in Federalist 78. This is from Alexander Hamilton. He says, the judicial branch has neither force nor will, but merely judgment, and must ultimately depend on the aid of the executive arm, even for the efficacy of its judgments. After all, think about it. What do we call court decisions? We call them opinions. We call them judgments. But, but the courts have been purposely deprived of the power to enforce their decisions. By the founders, By intentionally. The founders. It is intentional and it is explicit because the, the court, the judicial branch is the branch that is the most distant from the people. Right. Right? So they had to make sure that the, that the most distant branch from the people did not accumulate more power. But unfortunately, that is exactly what's happened. And my argument is that we are now a ruled people. We are no longer a self-governing people. We are ruled by appointed judges in black robes who are not accountable to the people and who have lifetime appointments. Now, the, the problem is not that they're appointed. The problem is not that they have lifetime appointments. The problem is not that we have judges. The problem is that all of the other players in the consensus mix, the executive branch, the legislative branch and the states have thrown up their hands and they have yielded to this assertion of judicial supremacy. They've been happy for it to happen because it absolves them of responsibility. Oh, it absolves them of responsibility. And I have to tell you, there's a little bit of a hint. If you, what you're saying, I, I, I've been reading a lot about this. I mm -hmm. completely agree that you're right, but it has a little sense of a feel of uncertainty about it because if, if there's not one final branch, we're agreeing as a final decider, right. you have that edginess of three equal co-equal co branches of government. Right. And what do you do when there's a conflict? For example, the most recent battle we had, or one of the recent battles, was in Washington in the Supreme Court. There was a question of whether or not the Trump administration could put on the census, it is the executive branch's job to send the census out. Right. They wanted to put the citizenship question on, and the Supreme Court, in a very squirrely, undefensible, in my opinion, opinion, delayed it, they sent it back down to a lower court, making it impossible to get the question on the census in the right. time to go to the printer. Right. Many people were saying, why doesn't the, the Commerce Department just go ahead and send it out with the question on because the Supreme Court really shouldn't have authority to make that decision? What's your take we on that? We will not drain the swamp until we start defying improper court orders. We will not. Now, this really shakes people up. When I, when I give this right. talk and I talk about ignoring courts and defying courts, people say, oh, they start shaking. That would be some sort of a constitutional crisis. No, that's how our system is designed to work. And th when you were talking about uh, earlier, this sort of tension or uneasiness that would come from not having a final authority, in our system, we're supposed to tolerate that tension. Because again, we're not supposed to be a ruled people where there is a final authority. We are supposed to be a self-governing people. So my argument is that states should understand. And by the way, if you've ever taken an oath of office at the state level, yeah. in Congress, in the executive branch, you take the same oath to the Constitution that judges do. 
Okay, every branch of government has an equal responsibility to interpret the Constitution. It is not left to the judicial branch. And states have an equal obligation to interpret the Constitution. It is not the provision, it is not the exclusive domain of the judicial branch to interpret and apply the Constitution. And the judicial branch gets it wrong. They do, and who, they who, give themselves who, power. Who, who did the Dred Scott decision? Was, right. was the court right? Correct. When it declared not, yeah. that African Americans only counted as two-third human beings? Of course not. Courts get it wrong all the time. So where do we get this idea somehow that courts, when, when you promote someone to a court, suddenly their brain becomes three times larger and they become ten times wiser? Well, on top of that, so many of the extremely controversial decisions that really is leftism that has been able to get many of their policies they could not get passed by an elected legislature got put in place by courts and often All of in five-four decisions. All of them. And 5-4 decisions, we're talking about five people in robes ruling the nation. If you think back on the most controversial things that have happened in the 20th century, politically, yes, every one of them was imposed on us by courts. Not just Roe v. Wade. Forced busing, you know, the Democrats have suddenly started talking about busing again. Yeah. Forced busing was imposed. Parents Gay marriage was imposed. Again, it doesn't matter what your view of gay marriage is, right? Right. But it should not have been imposed on people from courts. Remember, the most progressive state in the country, California, within the last 15 years, the people of California had a referendum on gay marriage and they voted against it. Right. And a court threw it out. A court, a court just flicked it away. Nope, you can't have that. It doesn't matter that it was done properly. It doesn't matter that it was done constitutionally under the California Constitution. A court just overruled it. The most controversial, the most socially jarring things that have happened in this country have all been imposed by the courts. They've not come through the normal process of consensus that our system is designed with. One point you make in the editorial you had, in the, I think it was in your editorial in the Dallas Morning News, was a point that no wonder the nominations for federal courts, right. district, and the circuit courts, and the Supreme Court had become the most contentious of almost anything in Washington because people are realizing ultimately whoever sits in those courts, given if we can continue to salute the judicial branch, right. they're going to run the country. And so it's really going to matter every single person on those courts. We have given so, them absolute power. We have made them into demigods who rule over us. So it's no wonder those are the biggest political knockdown dragouts. Yes. Yeah. And now, as a conservative, okay, I would rather conservatism in general be, be, be the dominant theory on the Supreme Court than progressivism. So I like it when my side has some control over the court. But that's not the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution is to take the court down a couple notches. And as long as, we, until we're willing to do that, we will continue to be ruled by these pendulum five-four swings. You know, one 80-year-old judge on a court making these decisions. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's absurd. Our founders would choke. Our founders would choke on the idea that a president of the United States, I mean, let's think about President Trump's immigration order restricting immigration from seven dangerous countries, okay? Yes. That process was all done by the preceding administration. It was all done by the Obama right. administration. So an administration goes through the process of determining how can we keep dangerous people out. An administration decides these seven countries are the sources of most of the dangerous people. The next administration says, okay, well then we will limit immigration from those dangerous <laughs> countries, right? This is all done properly. Right. This is all done constitutionally. And one mid-level judge on the West Coast thinks he has the power 
to issue a nationwide injunction that ties the hands of the entire executive branch. It's absurd. Our founders would roll over in their graves at that idea, but we just passively accept it. I want to hit two things. There are so many ways to go with this, and it's a huge topic. So I yep. hope to have you back sometime in the fall sure. to explore more of them. But one thing I mentioned earlier, how it, it's a little bit jarring to people to think, well, if the Supreme Court isn't the final arbiter, then we're just kind of lost. But the truth is, uh, in, in fact, there's a great writer, Daniel Horowitz, at Conservative Review, who said, the, the, if there's any, you know, one entity up here, it's the Constitution. It's what it, the right. Constitution itself says, and all of us have to be responsible to read it, understand it, and be able to argue it. So I love that thought that it's not, we're not lost in chaos. We're Absolutely actually rooted not. in the Constitution. We're, 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 but, that's, that's not called chaos, that's called freedom. That's called yes, liberty. Yes, yes. I, I love that, love that. Yeah. Um, I want to get around to the, what we do about it, because this is, I, the point you're making, and others during the uh, dispute about whether or not to send the census out with the question in it about citizenship, yeah. even given the Supreme Court, there were people making your point about why are we agreeing that the Supreme Court has this judicial supremacy? But I think it would be very, there aren't enough people in America alert to this problem you're right. describing. And so it would seem lawless, in frank, frankly, even to some judges and lawyers, it would seem lawless that you can't have the Commerce Department go ahead and sending out the question. The court said you couldn't do it. But I want to get to the, some ways that we can, because you have to, if you're alert to this, we have to find ways to bring about public awareness. Right and then to do the challenge to it. And some of the ways that people talk about um, it are involve having Congress take more of a role in describing what jurisdiction the federal courts have. But Congress won't do it. I mean, Congress is not the answer. And here's why, here's okay. why. What has happened is Congress has figured out that by deferring to the, to the judicial branch, it absolves them of responsibility. So they don't, I mean. So they like this. <laughs> you know, and, and, the, and, and the executive branch likes it. And the states like it. I mean, what has happened is we ha we now have this toxic miss where mix where all of the other players in this consensus design, they're quite happy to continue to get reelected and continue to go on television and give interviews, but yet let the courts have all the responsibility because the courts don't have to get reelected. See, I right. have to get reelected. So if I can find some way to shove my responsibility off to an unaccountable branch of government that never has to face the voters, that's kind of a sweet deal for me. Okay, so what is the answer? What do we do to push back against right. this, to bring back judicial supremacy or, or take it away from right. this, the, the federal The answer courts? is we need a few educated, enlightened elected officials, and, it, and it's more likely than not to be governors, although it could be a president, to simply defy court decisions that are inappropriate. I mean, I mean, yes, I mean literally defy it. I mean literally when the state of Alabama passes restrictions on abortions and it, it properly goes through the Alabama legislature and it is properly signed by the governor of Alabama. It's all been done properly through the, yep. through the proper design. And then the Supreme Court ultimately says, no, you can't have that. Uh, I hope you enjoyed playing at being a government, but you're really just playing at it because yep. we retain the authority. When the Supreme Court says, no, you can't do that, what the state of Alabama should do is they should issue a declaration and they could say, thank you very much, Supreme Court, for your opinion. <laughs> for your two we, cents. <laughs> thank you for your input, but we are gonna continue doing exactly what we say we're going to do. That's what should happen. Now, game it out. What happens? Yeah. What happens, really? What does the Supreme Court do then? They can't do anything, okay? Now, if Congress and the executive branch both together thought that a state had gone rogue, there are things they could do. 
They could cut off transportation funding to the state of Alabama. They could cut off education funding. But do you think they're going to do that? Do you think senators from the other states that are also trying to restrict abortion would go along with that? Let me predict what would happen if Alabama defied the Supreme Court. Nothing would happen. Nothing would happen except that except that all the cable news shows would be 24 hours a day about the constitutional crisis. They'd mm-hmm, all be talking right. about the constitutional crisis. It would not be a constitutional crisis. It would be a reassertion of the powers of the states, and it would be taking the courts down a notch. Now, remember, the Supreme Court has been defied before. Okay, During the yeah. Civil War, Congress passed something called the Fugitive Slave Act. Mm-hmm. And the Fugitive Slave Act told the northern states, you have to return runaway slaves. And it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, yes, this is constitutional. And, and um, Massachusetts and Wisconsin and several other states passed resolutions, and they said, we will not abide by this decision. And you know what happened? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. They ignored the Supreme Court and nothing happened. There are six or eight different times in American history where Supreme Court decisions have been ignored, either by the president or by the states, and nothing has happened because that is proper. That is not a constitutional crisis. That is proper. And I hope I live long enough Mm -hmm. to see a governor or a state legislature or a president say to the Supreme Court, thank you very much for your opinion. We have taken it under advisement and we have decided to proceed anyway. That, Debbie, is how our system's designed to work. Not judicial supremacy, not the tyranny of the judicial branch over all of the other levels of government. Tom Giovanetti, I love this topic. I am gonna invite you back in the fall Great. because I have about 25 more questions. <laughs> but quickly, if you could tell our listeners, your, your IPI is IPI.org. You wanna say a bit about IPI and what you do and, and what people sure. can learn no, there? Sure, no, we are a 32-year-old free market conservative think tank. We're based in Dallas, Texas. We're purposely based in Texas. We don't want to be in D.C. That's where most of the think tanks are. But we like being a thousand miles away from Washington. We think that protects us from sort of getting caught up in, in politics and caught up in the game. Uh, we're a nonprofit organization, so donations are tax deductible. And if folks want to support our work, we love them for doing that. All of our materials are free. Um, this judicial supremacy topic is sort of a pet topic of mine. It's not something that IPI has done a lot of work on. But you will find a dozen or more resources on our website on this topic, as well as on other topics like taxes and health care and technology policy and things like that. I will again to my listeners I'll tell you that the reason I love going this to this website is because everything is is very clearly written even if you're not a policy wonk like I can and sometimes be you can follow the arguments they're very clearly written and they they hit one topic well and you feel like I understand that I can repeat that so we I, try to write for regular people I appreciate that very Thanks. much okay and thank you so much for being here sure. today I loved having you great Okay, so I'm going to hit two more topics today in our time that always races by too fast. Uh, one, I want to call this a tweet storm blowback. And we talked yesterday about the tweets that President Trump put out that have caused such a kerfuffle in Washington, D.C., related to the four freshman Congress women who are referred to as the squad. And essentially, uh, President Trump used language uh, to the effect of they should go home. And he was attacking, really, uh, their the policies that they have. But he used the expression, go home. And so instantly, many people in the media attach, and people in Congress attach the word racist to these tweets. And I will just tell you that I think that 
President Trump's language was probably intentionally provocative. I think that the, the as people would be aware how his language would be received. But the truth is, what he's talking about is how radically left these organizations in Washington are. And so people have begun to speak up and to stand up and respond in President Trump's defense. And I want to share just a couple of those things with you. Um, one is that uh, Liz Cheney, who is a member of the United States Congress, um, you know, she's a um, from Wyoming. I think she might be running for Senate next time. But she has been very outspoken, essentially saying what President Trump is attacking about these four people, these four members, women members of the Democrat Party and first year, first term Congress, members of Congress, is that they are radical, is that their ideas don't belong in America. And she rattled off, a, she did a great press conference, rattled off a bunch of them saying, you know, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, you know, and these are un-American ideas and they don't belong in America. And I want to, I said this yesterday, I'm going to repeat it again today. It is really important for people to begin to use that vernacular in our country. There are things that don't belong in America. They're inconsistent with our Declaration of Independence, with our Constitution, and it's good to call them out. Stop pretending that we're having a policy dispute, as they say, between the 40-yard line in football you know we're kind of we are not we're having the radical left in this country is very radical I want to just share one little thing with you this was on Ilhan Omar she's one of the squad one of the four people on her website Ilhan Omar is if, if nothing else an extreme radical leftist she gets a lot of cover because she also happens to be black. She also happens to be Muslim. She's a first year, first term Congress, a member of Congress from the state of Minnesota. And she is a true, and I'm using, I don't use these words lightly, a Marxist, a leftist, a socialist. I want to put, this is just one little clip from her website. And I don't know if you can read that, but she is promising on her website, running for Congress, her vision and policy priorities. This is just one of them. She wants to have housing, not just guaranteeing adequate housing for low-income Americans. She's actually talking about she wants housing provided by the government, publicly and cooperatively owned models of housing for all people. If you go through her website, issue after issue after issue, she is a radical collectivist. She is, this is, it's okay to call this outside mainstream America. Not American, not okay in this country. Every policy issue she addresses on her own website, these are her words, not ours, are designed to send the signal that if you just would give her power, they would provide every American with a job, housing, food, education and free health care and the education all the way through college well you can't do that you can't do all those things she's promising unless you are a radical left-wing collectivist so when trump who chose his words i'm sure intentionally to be provocative he is helping america focus on what do these four people stand for the squad what do they stand for Ilhan Omar's website gives you great examples to understand. These are these people are not on the American playing field. All four of them, all four of the squad, the uh, these four um, Democrat members of the United States Congress, and again they are Ayanna Presley uh, from Massachusetts, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, Rashid Tlaib Michigan, and AOC Alexandria Ocasio Cortez of New York. 
All four of them have signed on to the Green New Deal, which isn't a bill yet, it's just a thought piece, but it is the most radical collectivist, and I will use the word even communist, takeover of our country. That's what's in the Green New Deal, and they're all fine with that. So the idea, Trump has succeeded, number one, calling attention to what these people stand for. And number two, I think he is actually re-inspiring the American conversation about what the term racist means. Is it okay to attach the term racist for the left to use the word racist as an attack vehicle to shut down policy conversations on issue after issue after issue after issue because that is what they do. So you had, as I mentioned, you had Liz Cheney speak up. Yeah, actually, Ben Carson came out and said very clearly, he said, I know President Trump very well, and I know better than any of these four ladies do, and he's not a racist. There was also a woman who works in the White House. Um, I don't know if we got this clip. I sent it to my wonderful producer, Matt. Yes, we did. We have a clip of a woman who works in the White House who is being asked, this was on Fox Nation show, just very quickly being asked, you know, what is it you think about President Trump and about his tweet relating to these four women, uh, the Mean Girls squad. Here's this. Lynn Patton is a former longtime Trump aide, and now she uh, works <laughs> with the administration, but joins us now in that capacity. So yeah. when you hear uh, these freshmen who don't really know the president, in many cases, I don't think have met the president, no. call him a racist over and over again and a bully, what's your response? Well, look, let me begin by saying you've got the squad of congresswomen who haven't done squat for the American people. They haven't passed one piece of legislation. They haven't done anything in their own districts. But what I personally find most offensive is that they've accused the president of attacking women of color. They've accused Nancy Pelosi of attacking women of color. Yet these women of color were the first ones to attack me, label me a token, and simply because I choose to vote based on policy and not my skin color. Well, they tried. I love her line. She was attacked as Lynn Patton works for President Trump, attacked by the squad because she chooses her, her, who to, whom to support in politics based on what she believes in instead of in her skin color, the way it's supposed to be in America. I'm telling you folks, this, uh, and everyone talks about President Trump playing, you know, four-dimensional chess and being 10 steps ahead. I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't agree with everything. Anyone, there's no one in the whole planet I agree with 100% of the time except myself. Um, but beside that, I'm not going to always agree with everything he said, but the conversation that's been stimulated by these tweets is extremely helpful. It's extremely helpful to expose the left. In fact, there was a lot of controversy, even the floor of the House, about whether it was accurate or fair to characterize these tweets as racist to essentially call their ideas un-American, which is what he's saying, to tell them if you really love socialism, go live in a country like that. Or for Ilhan Omar, if you really love Islamism, go live in a country like that. Go live someplace else and try these ideas. These are not, these are very similar to things I've said about Bernie Sanders. If you love socialism so much, go live in Cuba or Venezuela or even his beloved Denmark. Go live in these countries because these ideas don't belong in America. And part of what President Trump has reinvigorated in this country is the conversation about what America means. That's what he is talking about so often. It's why he talks about America first. What the idea of America means. America does not mean any screwball, wild-eyed idea anyone comes up with has legitimacy in our country. It does mean we have a First Amendment, we have freedom of speech, people can say these things, but if you have freedom of speech, you also must recognize everyone else does too, and people who find your views un-American, offensive, obnoxious, and, and just plain 
unlikable, they have just as much right to criticize what you said as you have to criticize them. So I think the conversation about what America means, what is fair to call racist, are actually healthy conversations in our happy American political conversation. And final topic today, a very quickie, I uh, use the expression feminexit. I am telling you folks, just like Candace Owens is leading the black and Latina exit uh, from the Democrat party, or at least from big government, Blexit, there needs to be a feminexit. Intelligent women need to march away, turn away, walk away from the American left and their ideas about what government is supposed to be and government is supposed to provide. And it's actually kind of starting a little bit, and I'm gonna talk more and more and more about what this idea of feminexit means. Women are told by politicians, and frankly, especially by left-wing women politicians, that to really stand up for women, you must stand with the American left on everything they believe in, which is abortion on demand, abortion after birth, uh, killing babies who are born alive or refusing to provide them care and, and letting them die, that you're supposed to stand with them. If you stand for, up as a woman, then you stand for left-wing big government policies, and you must enforce and encourage more and more creation of big government policies to help women and government-funded paid leave programs and government-funded college and government-funded health care, that somehow standing for women means standing up for these radical left-wing ideas, and it does not mean that. Women are entitled to have their views, their thoughts on topics of all kinds, and it is insulting to women that the American left spends so much time trying to tell women if you really stand for women, then you must agree with the left-wing values that we hold. Not true. We need to reject that. And I say starting a little bit, uh, Laura Trump, um, who is actually, I think she's, uh, yeah, she's Eric's wife. But anyway, the daughter-in-law of the president has started some rallies around the country called Women for Trump. And they had a big one outside of the uh, really near Valley Forge uh, yesterday. They had a huge crowd show up. They had Laura Trump, they had other people, uh, people who are fairly um, of significance, you know, Kimberly Goldfoyle, I can't say her name correctly, Ronna McDaniels, Mercedes Schlapp, I mean, a bunch of, of, of women standing up to say that they stand with President Trump. I always prefer in politics to say, I stand for ideas. I like the ideas that matter to me, the ideas consistent with the Declaration of Independence, the ideas consistent with the Constitution, that's what I stand for. And what I see in President Trump is he is standing for those ideas far more than the American left ever, ever has or could. Women need to get on this, I think it's a bandwagon, it is a movement that must take off and must take shape. Women need to be need to reject the message from the left that somehow because you're a woman you must think like a like a left-wing weak must have government take care of me big government advocate socialist advocate and think with the the brilliance and intelligence we have that are our god-given gifts women love freedom and in fact i'll tell you some of the things these women were saying at this rally yesterday women make up 56 percent of these six million new jobs created by President Trump since he took office. Um, women are 50% of the Trump campaign team. That's actually a fabulous thing. Um, the uh, this women are part of the 600,000 women who are lifted out of poverty by Trump policies. At some point, policies and outcome have to matter, not slogans, what the left sells you. What President Trump is doing with our free market economy, what he is doing in terms of his, his uh, positions and, and who, who he hires for the White House, who he hires for his campaign team, these are things that help and benefit women. There are also um, the 20, you know, 
all sorts of policies that President Trump has put out that actually end up helping women reflected in the fact that of the 975,000 individuals who donated to the Trump campaign in this first quarter, half of them were women. Women need to wake up and realize we are capable of thinking for ourselves and standing up for the ideas that have founded America, which are freedom, limited government, the ideas set forth in the Constitution and the Declaration, and those ideas have no home in today's American left. And now, my friends, part of the show I just love to do at the end, I could tell you why the stories we talk about matter to you. So I'm going to start first with the story that we started the show with about Prager and free speech. Google's treatment of PragerU is indefensible. 56 of 325 PragerU videos blocked by the pornography or violence standard. The Ten Commandments blocked under that. Hard to understand. Whether it's moral vacuity, confusion, or just plain moral idiocy, one of my favorite terms, or left-wing totalitarianism, social media censorship is control over ideas and information. Every American should object to this behavior and break up these monopolies. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I would love it. Uh, and then the next, uh, why we talk why it matters to you. The Supreme Court, SCOTUS, Supreme Court of the U.S., is actually not supreme. The U.S. Constitution creates three co-equal branches of government. The founders did not envision 5-4 SCOTUS votes as the means of resolving our political issues. The founders did not envision a federal district judge issuing nationwide injunctions. The judiciary has acquired too much power. It needs to be cut. Tweet storm, blowback, why it matters to you. I always love this Eleanor Roosevelt quote. I guess some people dispute she really said it, but I like it anyway. Small minds uh, think and talk about people. Larger minds talk about events. Great minds think about ideas. The squad's ideas are what President Trump and literally thousands of Americans, probably millions of Americans, do not like. The squad's ideas are out in the open for anyone to see, and many of them are profoundly un-American, and they do indeed reflect a hatred for the idea of America as founded. If you're tired of these tweet storms and the outrage of the day, do not give up. President Trump is forcing needed conversations and surface outrage is giving way to more serious thinking about what is America. And then the Feminexit, Women Supporting Trump, Identity Group Politics, IGP, you must think and be perpetually outraged according to your physical characteristics, skin color, ethnicity, gender, just like Blexit tells black and Latina exit uh, fed up with the uh, with uh, identity politics, Feminexit must do the same thing. Women are fed up with the independent with the idea of identity group politics. Independent-minded women see and speak the truth about the MAGA agenda, and it is working for women. And that, my friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Please tune in every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time. Please like this Facebook page. Please review this Facebook page. Please subscribe on, I so appreciate subscribe on uh, YouTube. Appreciate that very much. You can always email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com, especially if you subscri subscribe on YouTube. I want to encourage you to email me and get signed up for our weekly email. Once a week, I never share or sell any emails. It's a once a week email on Friday with links to the stories from the week and you can email me at americachemitalk at gmail.com and I will get you on our list. I get so many emails back saying, wow, this is a great email. It's substantive, thorough, no blather and it, you'll just love feeling more and more connected in talking about what the reason for, for my doing the show, which is to speak up for this extraordinary, precious experiment in human liberty, United States of America, and I speak up every day about it because America matters. Talk to you tomorrow.
talk truth about America. Can you